Welcome to the Talking Recruitment Podcast from the REC. Every week we look at all the latest insights, perspectives and experiences from across our diverse recruitment industry. Hello again everybody and welcome to the latest edition of Talking Recruitment, the REC podcast. My name is Neil Carberry, the REC Chief Executive. It's good to have you along again for another episode of our pod. Uh, Lots going on, a really busy time across the industry. You might have seen all the latest REC data suggesting really strong bounce back in both perm and temp hiring uh, as we've come out of lockdown and into the opening up phase. Watching uh, the outlook carefully with uh, developments both in the vaccine rollout and in the pandemic itself but lots of optimism around the industry at the moment hearing lots of good stories and that's great uh, uh, great to be uh, having this period after a a long 14 months of uh, what we've seen with the pandemic lots of activity at your REC as well as you might expect a big focus on talking to government about how we open up offices safely get that uh, social distancing guidance into a space where people can use their workplaces more effectively as soon as it's safe to do so same uh, going for things like uh, digital right to work checks where we had a good win in getting government to push back uh, the uh, the end date for digital work right to work checks but clearly we've got to go further than that and make sure that it stays digital for the long haul. We're also getting back on track with some of the big campaigns that we were running before the pandemic. So you saw a recruitment for recovery campaign. That's a real platform to talk about the value the industry delivers. And just one example of that um, on the back of some work that was done by Lang and Boisson uh, over the, la- uh, the last few months, we're uh, ramping up our work on uh, the sustainability of the healthcare market during June and into July, because that's a really important place to have a, a post-pandemic sensible discussion about the workforce planning in the NHS and the uh, sustainable role for agency alongside bank and substantive in that. So lots going on at your REC, lots for you to get involved with too. Do book up for the conference, uh, REC 2021 on uh, Uh, June the 29th is going to be a fantastic day. Business advice, lots of great insight from the client side and from business leaders uh, in the REC membership uh, and some really exciting guest speakers too. So do take a look at that. Free to members, of course, and do also take a look at the REC awards. I am fingers crossed hoping we're going to have an actual in-person awards night at the end of November. So do look out for that. The uh, Nominations are are opening now and uh, we're looking for all the great stories of the difference the industry's made over the last uh, uh, 18 months with the pandemic. Likewise, a couple of dates for your diary. Uh, the REC compliance test, all members have to take that by the 30th of June. There are events available to help you with understanding what needs to happen. Uh, do talk to your account manager about that. And finally, do use your vote in the REC board elections. Uh, that's open now. Delighted to say we've had a vast array of candidates put themselves forward for the vacant seat. So real choice for you in who you choose to put on the REC board to be one of your uh, representatives. Well, there we go. I did say it was a busy time. Uh, lots going on. Uh, but let's turn to our guest for today. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined by uh, someone many of you will know uh, in person or by uh, reputation, Chief Executive of Engage, Tim Cook. Tim, welcome along to the pod. It's a delight to have you with us. Pleasure to be here, Neil. Why don't we start with a bit of the Engage story for for the last uh, over the last year and a half in terms of what the business uh, went through during the pandemic and how you're looking to build uh, build back now that we're hoping that it's in the rearview mirror. 
we've been through the same as everybody else. So it's not worth really talking about. We all went remote, working from home overnight, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, we've all worked on the, the wellness programs, our people, different strategies to try and, you know, keep everybody engaged with the business. And despite, you know, how horrible COVID clearly is, I think it's been a, just a, a fundamentally fascinating 14 months or so. For me, it, it's changed some of the thinking around how you actually run a recruitment business or any business for that matter. And I'm really quite excited about actually building it back because it gives you a chance to stop, look, listen, and kind of where do we want to go? What do we want to build back to? So it's been a really interesting, I guess, period. Um, on a personal level, I can't tell you I haven't enjoyed it. You know, I've got 15 hours a week of my life back, which I've used largely working. Um, but the, the, the tragedy is that, you know, presenteeism has, presenteeism has gone, but we're now always on. So I think we've got some interesting people challenges coming up. That question of people challenges is interesting. You hinted at um, potentially you've changed your views on one or two things about the kind of optimal way to to structure a recruitment business and and people seem to be at the heart of that if you think about you know everyone's talking about how we move effectively to hybrid working at the moment what are the big themes that you see for how engage might change um in over the next couple of years to reflect what you've learned over the last uh, uh, the last year and a half i think there's some some pretty clear data actually that um, I'm a PwC. I was listening the other day. So they think the the top forty percent of your people are significantly more productive at home, um, and interestingly, the bottom forty percent are significantly less productive at home. So I think there's challenge number one: is how do we how do we capitalise on the good guys, and how do we help the not so great uh, become more productive? I think you know honestly, we've done some stuff that we just didn't think we could do. So, you know, whether it's big events, which we've all been managing, but, you know, I even did an acquisition over Zoom, you know, and we, we bought a firm, multi-million euro gig, um, and we never met them. And I think, you know, if people tell you you can't do stuff without meeting people, they're not correct. I think it's just a, a, a real shift. Um, I think we've got to check our own bias. I think, you know, many of us have worked in an environment where, you know, it's nine to five or eight to six or five days a week in the office. And I think, again, there's some evidence that the older people want to get it back to the back to normal, old normal, uh, and I don't. I genuinely am thinking about this in the new normal in terms of what can we do more of, what can we do better. You know, there's no question it's cheaper and it's more efficient to run. Um, and I think, you know, our industry, particularly in the UK, battles with margin. So anything that can take cost out of delivery is worth looking at. That's an interesting point about the cost of delivery challenge. Um, I've talked to a few people recently about um, particularly in what is increasingly a candidate tight labour market, um, efficiency and delivery being a big driver for for clients, but clearly um, that's not going to take the margin pressure away. So the cost side, in terms of what it, co- it costs to set people up to do their work, is gonna is gonna remain really really important. Um, when we when we think about that, then there's a, an implicit underlying challenge in terms of well. What is it that we lose if we go heavily down that path? And you know, you've talked about making an acquisition entirely over over Zoom. It's certainly the case that you know, we changed our governance at the REC after the members' vote last year and appointed uh, new non-exec director directors to the business. Um, and at the time that we're recording this, I've not met four of the REC directors in person. I mean, I know them because, um, and I value their contribution, but it's a very different world. I would not have thought that that was possible. 
18 months ago. But if I think about my staff at the REC and what I see in other businesses, the core critical path of everything we're trying to do, I think we've proved we can do online, the board meetings, uh, the acquisitions. It's the softer stuff. I don't like that phrase, but the the kind of the corporate culture, the kind of team building, the directional piece that I think a lot of people who are concerned about a hybrid model are worried about. What what are you thinking about in terms of you know how do you get people on board with the the end the engaged story and and particularly looking at that forty percent who are a bit more challenged working at home. How do we how do we support them into that team ethic, which we know is the thing that will kind of help uh, drive up performance? I think that's right, Neil. I think you know the, the challenge is not us old people, you know, non-execs and you know directors, chairman, chief exec board meetings, and it's pretty easy because we've got a lot of if I can use the term wisdom, you know, we've certainly got a lot of experience and scars, I guess. But the, the people that, that I, I'm losing sleep over is how do we bring new people into our industry? You know, and it doesn't matter whether you're talking about lawyers. I consider recruitment a professional service, by the way. And um, so how do you bring people into our world? How do they learn by osmosis? And I think we've got to a kind of thinking, which is probably down the Salesforce sort of model, where we've got, we, we're planning, and it's not written in stone because I think it's going to change. Um, but our current thinking is that we will have three cohorts. We'll have the always in, um, and that will be clearly reception. Uh, all the trainees will be always in, potentially people that are needing some performance support. We'll have the never in, and I don't see any reason that our accountants or our IT or our HR support people need to come into an office unless they want to, which is fine. Uh, and again, it may be we team meetings or what we're increasingly calling heads up meetings, you know, banks of, of workers, this sort of worker bees is probably gone. Why would you Why would you get on a train to do something you could do at home? So we, we got to think about what we're actually doing when we're in the office. And then I think the third cohort is probably most of us, which will be, I'm calling it the flex mob, um, where we will probably do something like two days in, three days in the following week, two days in and alternate that. But I think we've got to be careful about it because we need to make sure that the, the leadership live the right beliefs. So if the leadership comes in and works you know, eight till six, we'll be back to where we started. If the leadership never turns up, uh, nobody else will turn up. Um, and I think we've got to manage that quite carefully. So we, we, we practice something called tight, loose, tight around our, our, our deliverables. So very careful setup of what people expect to do. Then, you know, who cares how they do it? And then, a, a, again, a tight kind of follow-up to that to make sure that the deliverables are actually delivered. So for me, it's definitely going to be a blended solution. I think if you're going to force everybody into the office all day long, every day, you won't have any staff because the people down the road will be offering a much more flexible model. And every survey I have seen has said that people don't want to go back to that sort of eight till six, five days in the office. So for me, it's really how do we manage the youngsters? How do we get, you know, how do we, how do we teach people? How do we great recruiters? Well, I couldn't agree with you more on the professional services point. And, uh, and I think we've seen that in just in the last few months because you know, one of the most common things I talk to uh, recruitment leaders about is uh, the shortage of skilled consultants. At the moment, everybody's trying to hire them. There aren't as many around. Everyone's thinking about, well, how do we go back to starting to bring people into the industry? And I think there is a, a real challenge with um, how do we give people a pathway into an industry that will look different in all sorts of ways from uh, from what went before, not just in terms of how we work, but the kind of technology we use and our client relationships, much more in that 
that professional services space. Um, just while we're we're thinking about that, one of the things that's on my mind, and I know yours, is how uh, technology changes what we do. And uh, you know, for a long time, if you went, if you go to the kind of trade shows, you'll see a lot of vendors there talking about AI, and um, when in fact what they're doing is some really busy automation, which is great. Um, but I do think that there's an increasing trend to to some kind of automated decision making coming into recruitment. And I know you've been thinking about that from an engage per, perspective. And I think there is a link here to to the skills and capabilities our people need that we were talking about before. So what's the what's the engage experience thinking about how we bring AI into the uh, into the recruitment space more in a more structured way? I think that's a really difficult question, Neil. I think people talk about AI, machine learning, RPA and quite glibly. And I think we need to really understand, you know, what is the difference between these things? You pointed out yourself, a lot of it is algorithmic. So we, we're quite long on RPA. We, we have a lot of quite complicated um, robotic kind of process automation going on across the group now. Um, we're now also uh, flirting with, I guess you'd call it machine learning in terms of chatbots and you know, we can curate now significantly more traffic than before. I think when you get to AI, I think people get lost in this matching kind of weeds and a lot of money has been spent on it. And I don't think it is the answer. I think, interestingly, the, the human element, the pattern recognition that we talk about that humans are so good at, but AI is increasingly harder than it sounds to, to create and make happen unless it's running vast data sets. I think the, the most interesting one I've seen so far, which we're looking at at the moment, is actually a a staff engagement platform, um, which is anonymizing all of our own data and that of many other thousands of employers. And it's endeavoring to kind of pick, well, this is a level of disengagement which could involve somebody leaving, for example. So can you intervene before it happens? Can you predict what's going to happen? So I think in pure recruitment terms, RPA is not difficult and is now kind of business as usual in our world. I think chatbots are getting there, and I think we, we are getting it curated to a point we can do more consistently at the right time um, and with the right messages. But at the end, there's a handoff back to the recruiters actually to close out and, and, if you like, nuance the deal. And to your point about high quality recruiters, you know, some people are very good at this and some people are not so good at this. And I think, you know, it is a, it is a skill. And I think it's it's quite difficult to take the human out of it. The last point in AI for me is I think it's probably more interesting in the sort of EDI world, where actually it can take out some of the subjectivity or some of the bias or the unconscious bias that we have. So I think from an HR professional perspective, AI is quite interesting. From a transactional recruitment perspective, it's less so to me. I think you know, matching isn't difficult, right? A doctor is a doctor. There's a different skill set. In fact, the more complex the job description, the easier it is to find someone. The matching is the personality stuff, which is much harder and tends to be in the generic skill sets. Yeah, I think it's really important to understand that when we talk about AI in practice for at least the next sort of five to 10 years, we're not talking about general intelligence in any kind of way. We're talking about um, quite specific bits of bits of intelligence and and as you say human um human skill to see patterns and to persuade the candidate and to uh, shape the client's perceptions and what their uh, uh, and their understanding of their their problem that feels like 
rendering to the human beings the things that human beings do best and and is fundamentally back in that professional services space that we were discussing before. I agree, fundamentally. Uh, but, but also, it is quite amusing to me that people don't know anymore when they're talking to a chatbot. So just for fun, I, we did a management conference of probably about 18 months, two years ago now at the Space Centre. Um, and I got the chatbot to invite them all and give them directions and they could ask me questions. And of course, we then revealed Robbie the robot on the day. And of course, everybody said that, yes, yes, of course, I recognise it was a chatbot. I've read all the transcripts. I can tell you that 90% of them had no idea they were talking to, to a robot. So I think the, the issue is you can do a lot of the transactional stuff quite simply, but you're right, getting back to that kind of closing the deal, really, the convincing, the selling of the, the, the culture of the customer you're working on behalf of, nuancing that's a tough gig. And I think that's where real recruiters earn their corn is that, you know, I'm representing my customers by selling you this job, so I need to understand it properly. That's, that's quite difficult just to build into a, an algorithm. Yeah, I'm thinking what, what comes to mind is a great piece in the Harvard Business Review that Hong Lee pointed to in a, an episode of um, uh, Recruitment Brain Food recently, um, which is all about psychological safety in the workplace. And, you know, about recruiters feeling confident in their professionalism that the tech isn't a threat um, and and we know it hasn't we've adapted to numerous technological changes you know when i started in recruitment in in the 90s we thought having a database that was proprietary was uh, was a difference maker um you know the world the world has moved on uh, and as a sector we've rolled with tech changes it, i think it is that professionalism and that confidence in our own ability to deliver in ways where the kind of fences that have sat around us before are going to look are going to go away so we're our teams are going to be more online um there's a whole there's a whole need for in, uh, firms as we build back better to think about maybe some things that came naturally when everyone was together that we just have to draw out and make more explicit when everyone's apart oh i think that's that's fundamentally true however what's been fascinating is that it can the engage is, is, is effectively a platform so we go to market as specific boutiques as brushes companies but the whole lot runs off of effectively a common platform regardless of where we are in the world actually what's been fascinating is that we have probably now 260 offshore colleagues um in in various places around the world um and of course i was doing the end of year conferences with the different teams this year and I couldn't tell which were the onshore and which were the offshore teams, which was fascinating. So what was perceived to be a threat to some of our, our kind of recruiters, and that's, that's an onshore physical body rather than the technology, none of this is taking anything away. What it's enabling us to do is to grow and grow faster. And I think, you know, there is a linear relationship between our fees and our headcount in recruitment. It's a function of the productivity. So if you want to double the size of a recruitment business, you're going to need twice as many people. And nobody's quite broken the back of that yet. Um, but actually, I don't mind where we where we add them, and I don't mind if we can take away some of the humdrum tasks to allow them to focus, to your point, on professional services, you know, to allow them to focus on the important stuff. You know, yeah. dealing, you know, we're not good as, as an industry at dealing with the volumes that we, we have to deal with, and that's the same whether you're a, a recruitment business or you're a corporate recruiting people. Yeah, that focus on um, our definition of productivity 
which is not just throughput, it's throughput quality. And, and then the pace of production on that, which is a very manufacturing way of viewing the world. But in manufacturing, what you do is you build the first one and it takes you three weeks. And then over over a period of months and years, you learn how to make it in about 25 seconds. And I think there's a that thought process. It can feel alien sometimes in, in service industries, but I think a bit of that about how do we improve the functioning of the stuff that we can automate you talk about rpa um to so that the the guys that we are paying the big bucks to are like the r d guys the developers the engineers in manufacturing who are who are really making a difference to what is being delivered to clients i think that's right i think that recruitment isn't particularly good at segmenting itself so in my world, there are different levels of service required for different functions. And I don't mean that in terms of uh, executive down to, say, clericals. I think human beings are human beings, regardless. But I think when you're doing what I call ultra-high frequency, so that would be a nurse shift business, for example, mm. actually the way that we transact with those people is enabling a lot of self-service seems to me the right thing to do, and people want to do it themselves. I think as you move into the perm markets and the, the higher value perm markets where the frequency is a lot lower, I think that's where your rocket scientists need to sit because I think there's a, there's a bit more thought persuasion that needs to go on rather than a simple transaction. And of course, there's always there's, there's a whole gamut in between. Yeah, maybe maybe manufacturing is the wrong the 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 wrong analogy for me. It's a bit like it's a bit like a, a an airline with sort of first and business class passengers at one end of the plane who are being weighted on hand and uh, hand and foot and at the far end of the plane you've got people who are very happy to buy the bargain basement ticket and print out their own boarding pass and print and print and tag their own luggage and uh, and that segmentation and understanding where different clients are feels important to making the right decisions about what and how we automate Oh, absolutely. And and I think, you know, the, the take up of some of this stuff, and trust me, we've tried some of this, you know, if it's not easy to use, people just don't touch it. If it's not appropriate, it doesn't work. You know, everybody says, oh, we've got to have an app for our, our you know, our, let's take one of our businesses, you know, it does qualified social workers, contractors, they're professionals, they earn quite a lot of money, they're normally imposed for an average of nine to 12 months. Uh, they don't want an app, they don't want to use it. They all download it once and nobody ever goes near it again. And we've tried to put interesting tools in there, check your pay slips in there, you know, here's some news feeds, and nobody goes anywhere near it. So I think you have absolutely got to think about the segmentation when you're designing and building whatever solution you're kind of trying to come up with. I suppose the other thing that's in this whole tech change space, and we've done quite a lot of work at the REC with the CDEI, the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation, who are sort of sort of government and sort of not um, on uh, the ethics of the use of uh, AI in in recruitment. And of course, they're really interested in it because the question they're asking is, well, how far does this support better inclusion in the process and how far might it damage it if the algorithmic processes are wrong, either because they overlook things or because they reflect the bias of the people who, uh, who created the algorithm. And there is another leg to this. It's probably my part of the world, which is, yeah, to what extent is government going to stick its oar in to, to how we as a sector automate? And I, I may be a bit more worried about that at the moment uh, because, you know, over the course of the pandemic, we've developed a taste for interventionism. And one of the things that's on my mind, interesting your reflection is, you know, how much of this from a public policy point of view are we 
do we want to say, look, we back a flexible labour market, we back people at the front line to do the right thing, um, and therefore we're going to let this ride, versus how much is some form of market uh, structuring by regulation desirable? Uh, you know, after a year of big government intervention, what's your thinking on how how far they should reverse away from kind of getting involved in this stuff versus the, them needing to be a referee? I think that's a, that's a, that's a brilliant question, Neil, and I, I, I'm in two minds on this, if I'm brutally honest. I think there's bigger fish to fry around um, the use of data. You know, I think social media should be regulated, frankly. I'm much more in the other Tim Cook camp of data privacy and regulation because I think it's utterly out of control. Um, I think you know the recruitment sector is a very small part of that, frankly, and therefore it's probably not the biggest issue for them to worry about. I think in terms of, of intervention, a flexible workforce is the be-all and end-all of a decent modern society. And I think the challenge for government is, you know, government want everybody to be you know, employed so they can tax it properly. Unions want everybody employed because they can control it. You know, and quite a lot of people aren't thinking like that. And I think this gig economy, every talks about it, it's real, it happens. And I think now we're remote, it's going to happen more. I think we're going to, you know, see things like work as a service where people will have more than one job with more than one employer. Uh, and remotely, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. So I think for me, we want to protect the vulnerable. Let's not worry about the people who can look after themselves. Um, but I also think there's in our world, we've got some very specific bits, you know, the, the whole umbrella situation at the moment, you know, it's problematic. And, it, and it's the issue for me is that, you know, we hand over our service, we've got PAYE, but nobody wants to be PAYE with us for some reason, they want to go for an umbrella company, because there's this kind of whole world that thinks it's the way to go. Factually, I'm not, I'm not sure as I agree with that. We hand off our service that we are held responsible for to a third party who often I don't know who they are. So I think what we'd like to see, what I'd like to see, is some decent regulation around some of that um, and a level playing field, whichever way they go. You know, I consider us to be one of the good guys and we play by the rules, but then there's a lot of people out there that, that won't. I think that's really interesting. I've, I've Swiss cheese comes to mind when it comes to the kind of the labor market we have and the regulatory approach that we have that that we we've got from government at the moment i think none of us think that government dotting every i and crossing every t is is what we would want equally we have to regulate for the labor market that we have and the standards we have however people work and and kind of accept that there will be self-employed people, there will be agency workers, there will be substantively employed uh, uh, staff in, uh, in different numbers across, uh, across the labour market. And I think the challenge, reflecting on the discussions we're having at the REC at the moment, is everyone, literally everyone, thinks the pande- pandemic proves what they already believed. And therefore, all of the answers are not new answers. They're answers that were around 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago. I actually think one of the big jobs for the REC going forward is to try and make the argument for a discussion that says, well, people will work in lots of different ways and it is right that they are protected. How could we do that in new ways? And I think the umbrella company regulation discussion is part of that. 
uh, you know, we were very clear with government that if you push IR35 into the private sector, you also have to regulate umbrella companies. They haven't done it. I do think some of the upturn in interest now, while not, some of the, these stories are not new, reflects the fact that people are seeing the challenges that that, that, that has uh, created. But I worry that unless we have a kind of sensible discussion around a table, we just end up with kind of a guardian leader once a month slagging, uh, slagging the industry off when actually you, know, you go to the work uh, that you and we did together with uh, several others on recruitment for recovery, the story the industry can tell about how it's underpinned uh, Britain's uh, a weathering of the pandemic and, and the beginnings of recovery is a really positive one. I think it's a hugely positive one. And again, I'm going to blow a bit of smoke, Neil. You know, I think you know, the REC is starting to, to punch an appropriate level of weight, as far as I'm concerned. I think for years, our industry has been, you know, everybody talks about the fishermen, you know, tiny, whiny industry, as far as I'm concerned. We're here, we are at a 35 billion pound business in the UK alone, turning over an oiling industry and oiling business. You know, people, is, it's everything. We make, we help the world go round. Um, and recruitment is, is a, I think it's a sexy, interesting, fascinating pan-industry business. Um, and it is a good thing. And, and we've got an obligation, I think, to start promoting that for what it is. For that to happen, of course, is that we need to, if you like, manage the supply chain. Because if it goes wrong in an umbrella company, we seem to get the blame for it. You know, We seem to be up for whatever happens with, with the person that's getting called on it all the time. And I look at our own net promoter score and you know, there's problems with pay and tax and people don't understand it. And it's us that gets the blame. So I'm minded to take a kind of Amazon-esque approach to this, which if you recall, Amazon in the good old days, you know, the, the supply chain was pretty terrible. And in the end, Amazon took that problem on. And actually, if you're doing with Amazon, they will refund your money and they'll deal with the supply chain outside of that. So I think, you know, to, to your point, yes, we are a hugely positive force for the good. I, I don't see us as anything other than that. I think we can help the, the road to recovery, whatever you want to call it. But I have to tell you, I've never seen it as busy as this. Uh, in 33 years. How, how long that lasts, that rebound, not so sure, but it looks like we've got a couple of years of this now. And it's exciting. And I think, you know, let, let's make sure the government understands that we can help. I think that's exactly where we're trying to be. And it links it together, actually, with what we were discussing earlier, with that kind of pride in what we do and the professional services approach. I think there's a real opportunity to jump the river now to to get to the to get into that professional services space, particularly if we can use the tech effectively to to focus our uh, human beings on doing the stuff humans do well. That's been a fascinating chat, Tim. Um, uh, listen, thanks very much for joining us on the pod today. It's been my pleasure, Neil. Keep well, keep safe. And thank you to all of you for joining this edition of the REC podcast, Talking Recruitment. Delighted to have you along. If you've enjoyed this one, why not try one or two of our back catalogue from the 2021 uh, group, uh, episode six on mental health, both for recruitment leaders and for your teams with Michelle Flynn. It's a cracking listen. Or try episode eight with Steve Guest on the future uh, of uh, the industry and and how to uh, compete on that professional services level that uh, Tim and I were just discussing. Thank you all for uh, listening in today and join us again soon for another episode of Talking Recruitment, the REC podcast. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Join me for another episode soon. 
and check out our back catalogue at rec.uk.com to catch up on some other fantastic discussions that are really helpful for recruiters. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify, so subscribe to REC Podcasts to never miss an episode.